Welcome, dear listeners, to another edition of Car Time Stories, where we explore stories that push the boundaries of human understanding. Today, we delve into the captivating tale of Dr. Adrian Locke, a modern alchemist on a quest to rewrite the very code of human existence. In the heart of a bustling city, fueled by personal tragedy, Dr. Locke believes he has unlocked the secret to extending human life. Join us as we navigate through the pages of his journey, from the loss of his mother to the groundbreaking experiments that blur the lines between science and morality. Get ready for a thought-provoking exploration of ethics, the boundaries of human potential, and the consequences of tampering with the very essence of life. In the bustling heart of London, there lived a modern-day alchemist named Dr. Adrian Locke. His obsession with unravelling the secrets of human longevity was born from a personal tragedy, the untimely death of his mother when he was just a teenager. Driven by grief and an insatiable thirst for knowledge, Adrian dedicated his life to understanding the intricacies of the human body. Unlike his peers who indulged in the distractions of television and social media, Adrian immersed himself in textbooks and scientific journals, determined to decipher the enigma of ageing. His quest led him to a groundbreaking revelation. Age was not dictated solely by lifestyle choices, but by the very essence of one's genes. Driven by this newfound insight, Adrian embarked on a journey of genetic exploration during his college years. He travelled to far corners of the world, collecting DNA samples from elderly individuals in Japan, Italy and Ireland. Armed with these genetic blueprints, he conducted experiments that would change the course of human existence. Adrian's breakthrough came when he successfully blended the genes of centenarians with those of contemporary individuals. The result was astonishing. Enhanced longevity, surpassing the limitations imposed by traditional notions of age. Encouraged by this success, he delved deeper into the manipulation of genes, creating what he referred to as supergenes. As the experiments progressed, Adrian became a modern-day Dr. Frankenstein, a visionary on the verge of reshaping the very fabric of human existence. His creations went beyond longevity. They were larger, stronger, and seemingly ageless. The boundaries of human potential were being pushed to the extreme. Word of Adrian's groundbreaking work spread, attracting both awe and skepticism from the scientific community and the public alike. Some hailed him as a pioneer, a saviour, promising an era where humans could live well beyond the confines of natural life expectancy. Others condemned him as a mad scientist, playing with forces beyond comprehension. Adrian, undeterred by the controversy, continued his experiments, driven by the belief that he was offering humanity a gift, the gift of time. His creations, the products of his supergenes, walked among society, living testimonials to the success of his radical genetic therapies. As the world watched with bated breath, the ethical implications of Adrian's work became the subject of intense debate. Was he a hero forging a path to a utopian future, or a misguided visionary playing with forces that could spiral out of control? Only time would tell whether Adrian's alchemical pursuits would be celebrated or condemned, and whether the supergenes he created would lead humanity into a golden age or open Pandora's box to unforeseen consequences. 
For modern-day science fiction to a classic, our next story masterfully weaves humour and deception. Join us as we explore The Open Window by Saki, where a young girl named Vera takes centre stage, using her storytelling prowess to entertain an unsuspecting visitor. The Open Window by Saki My aunt will be down presently, Mr. Nuttall, said a very self-possessed young lady of fifteen. In the meantime, you must try and put up with me. Frampton Nuttall endeavoured to say the correct something which should duly flatter the niece of the moment without unduly discounting the aunt that was to come. Privately, he doubted more than ever whether these formal visits on a succession of total strangers would do much towards helping the nerve cure which he was supposed to be undergoing. I know how it will be, his sister had said when he was preparing to migrate to this rural retreat. You will bury yourself down there and not speak to a living soul, and your nerves will be worse than ever from moping. I shall just give you letters of introduction to all the people I know there. Some of them, as far as I can remember, were quite nice. Frampton wondered whether Mrs. Sappleton, the lady to whom he was presenting one of the letters of introduction, came into the nice division. Do you know many of the people round here? asked the niece when she judged that they had had sufficient silent communion. Hardly a soul, said Frampton. My sister was staying here at the rectory, you know, some four years ago, and she gave me letters of introduction to some of the people here. He made the last statement in a tone of distinct regret. Then you know practically nothing about my aunt? pursued the self-possessed young lady. Only her name and address, admitted the caller. He was wondering whether Mrs. Sappleton was in the married or widowed state. An undefinable something about the room seemed to suggest masculine habitation. Her great tragedy happened just three years ago, said the child. That would be since your sister's time. Her tragedy? asked Frampton. Somehow in this restful country spot, tragedies seemed out of place. You may wonder why we keep that window wide open on an October afternoon, said the niece, indicating a large French window that opened onto a lawn. It is quite warm for the time of the year, said Frampton. But has that window got anything to do with the tragedy? Out through that window three years ago to a day, her husband and her two young brothers went off for their day's shooting. They never came back. In crossing the moor to their favorite snipe-shooting ground, they were all three engulfed in a treacherous piece of bog. It had been that dreadful wet summer, you know, and places that were safe in other years gave way suddenly without warning. Their bodies were never recovered. That was the dreadful part of it. Here the child's voice lost its self-possessed note and became falteringly human. Poor aunt always thinks that they will come back some day they and the little brown spaniel that was lost with them, and walk in at that window just as they used to do. That is why the window is kept open every evening, till it is quite dusk. Poor dear aunt, she has often told me how they went out, her husband with his white waterproof coat over his arm, and Ronnie, her youngest brother, singing, Bertie, why do you bound? as he always did to tease her, because she said it got on her nerves. Do you know, sometimes on still quiet evenings like this, 
I almost get a creepy feeling that they will all walk in through that window. She broke off with a little shudder. It was a relief to Frampton when the aunt bustled into the room with a whirl of apologies for being late in making her appearance. I hope Vera has been amusing you, she said. She has been very interesting, said Frampton. I hope you don't mind the open window, said Mrs. Sappleton briskly. My husband and brothers will be home directly from shooting, and they always come in this way. They've been out for snipe in the marshes today, so they'll make a fine mess over my poor carpets. So like you menfolk, isn't it? She rattled on cheerfully about the shooting and the scarcity of birds and the prospects for duck in the winter. To Frampton, it was all purely horrible. He made a desperate but only partially successful effort to turn the talk on to a less ghastly topic. He was conscious that his hostess was giving him only a fragment of her attention, and her eyes were constantly straying past him to the open window and the lawn beyond. It was certainly an unfortunate coincidence that he should have paid his visit on this tragic anniversary. The doctors agree in ordering me complete rest, an absence of mental excitement, and avoidance of anything in the nature of violent physical exercise, announced Frampton, who labored under the tolerably widespread delusion that total strangers and chance acquaintances are hungry for the least detail of one's ailments and infirmities, their cause and cure. On the matter of diet they are not so much in agreement, he continued. No, said Mrs. Sappleton, in a voice which only replaced a yawn at the last moment. Then she suddenly brightened into alert attention, but not to what Frampton was saying. Here they are at last, she cried, just in time for tea, and don't they look as if they were muddy up to the eyes? Frampton shivered slightly and turned towards the niece with a look intended to convey sympathetic comprehension. The child was staring out through the open window with a dazed horror in her eyes. In a chill shock of nameless fear, Frampton swung round in his seat and looked in the same direction. In the deepening twilight, three figures were walking across the lawn towards the window. They all carried guns under their arms, and one of them was additionally burdened with a white coat hung over his shoulders. A tired brown spaniel kept close at their heels. Noiselessly they neared the house, and then a hoarse young voice chanted out of the dusk, I said, Bertie, why do you bound? Frampton grabbed wildly at his stick and hat. The hall door, the gravel drive, and the front gate were dimly noted stages in his headlong retreat. A cyclist coming along the road had to run into the hedge to avoid imminent collision. Here we are, my dear, said the bearer of the white Macintosh, coming in through the window. Fairly muddy, but most of it's dry. Who was that who bolted out as we came up? A most extraordinary man, a Mr. Nuttle, said Mrs. Sappleton. Could only talk about his illnesses, and dashed off without a word of goodbye or apology when you arrived. One would think he had seen a ghost. I expect it was the Spaniel, said the niece calmly. He told me he had a horror of dogs. He was once hunted into a cemetery somewhere on the banks of the Ganges by a pack of pariah dogs, and had to spend the night in a newly dug grave with the creatures snarling and grinning and foaming just above him, enough to make anyone lose their nerve.
Romance at short notice was her speciality. For our final story, we follow the journey of Jake, a fresh-faced new hire at Omnicorp, who quickly realises that beneath the polished exterior of business jargon lies a company drowning in incompetence. In this gripping narrative, we explore the struggle between speaking up for change and succumbing to the comfort of conformity. Get ready for a roller coaster through the corridors of power, where meetings turn into mazes and cliches become the currency of survival. Jake's heart pounded in his chest, the rhythm echoing through the sterile silence of his new office. The leather chair creaked slightly as he adjusted his position, the smell of fresh leather mingling with the sterile air that seemed to permeate every corner of the Omnicorp headquarters. He couldn't believe it, a job offer from this global behemoth, a stepping stone to the world he'd always dreamed of. The first week was a whirlwind, a blur of introductions, orientation sessions and mountains of paperwork. Jake felt like a cog in a well-oiled machine, each step preordained, each action meticulously choreographed. He diligently attended every meeting, eager to prove himself to become a vital part of the Omnicorp family. He envisioned himself tackling innovative projects, leaving his mark on the world, climbing the corporate ladder to unimaginable heights. Then, the waterfall of endless meetings with a kaleidoscope of important-sounding subjects made little sense. Strategic vision alignment, synergistic paradigms, operational excellence showcase. Each meeting was a symphony of buzzwords, a carefully orchestrated dance of jargon that obscured a lack of substance. Jake took diligent notes trying to decipher the cryptic language of corporate speak. We need to leverage our synergies, one executive droned, leaning forward with a predatory smile. Let's circle back on that later and we'll put a pin in that discussion for now. Jake nodded along, feeling a growing unease. He couldn't shake the feeling that everyone was playing a game, a charade of productivity masking a deeper stagnation and lack of execution. At home, Jake confessed his frustrations to Emma, his wife. It's like they're reading from the same script, Emma, he sighed, his shoulders slumping. They talk about innovation, about teamwork, but nothing ever gets done. No one does anything, it's all smoke and mirrors. Emma, ever the pragmatic one, raised an eyebrow. But you're part of the team now, Jake. Can't you make a difference? The question hung in the air. Jake knew she was right, but the fear of rocking the boat of being ostracized was a heavy weight on his chest. He was the new guy, the outsider. Speaking up felt like a gamble, a high-stakes game where silence might be the only winning move in a culture he didn't really understand. Days turned into weeks, then months. The cycle of meetings continued, each one a hollow echo of the last. The company's financial reports, once a closely guarded secret, started to leak out painting a grim picture. Losses, layoffs, a growing sense of unease. Jake knew there was a reason for their struggles. But speaking up still felt like walking a tightrope without a net. The weeks wore on, and a subtle transformation occurred within Jake. The words that had once filled him with disgust became his own. Let's circle back on that, he'd say, or we need to leverage our core competencies. The infectious culture of inaction had slowly seeped into his own veins, turning him into a mirror image of the very system he once despised. One evening, 
staring at the reflection of his tired eyes in the computer screen. The truth hit him like a gut punch. I'm becoming one of them, Emma, he confessed, his voice barely a whisper, a walking, talking cliché. I used to dream of making a difference, but now I just want to survive. Emma placed a comforting hand on his shoulder. Maybe it's time to find a place where your talents are valued, Jake, a place that thrives on action, execution, not rhetoric. Her words resonated with the truth Jake had been trying to ignore. The fear of the unknown, the comfort of a steady paycheck had kept him tethered to Omnicorp. But the cost had been his own integrity, his own dreams. He looked at Emma, a flicker of determination lighting up his eyes. He knew what he had to do. He would leave this corporate labyrinth, the empty promises and meaningless meetings behind. He would find a place where his voice could be heard, where passion and action were valued above empty jargon. He would find his way out of the fog and into the light. The journey wouldn't be easy, but for the first time in months, Jake felt a sense of hope. He was no longer just another cog in the machine. He was an individual, the main character in his own story, and good or bad, he was ready to write his own ending. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Car Time Stories podcast. Before I let you go, I would like to implore you to rate our podcast and write a brief review. Your help would be greatly appreciated. And finally, please visit cartimestories.com to purchase our premium video content. Until next time, we thank you and hope that you tell your friends about the Car Time Stories podcast, where we strive to fuel young minds one story at a time.